Welcome to the Meeting the Moment podcast, a show featuring stories by Stanford students about how they're meeting big moments in their lives. All of the students featured are fellows in the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life at Stanford. I'm Adeswa Agmoyla. Stories have the power to teach us and heal us, guide us, and even inspire us to change. Stories engage the big, unanswered questions we all face. That's what you're going to hear on this podcast. Stories of people making meaning of big questions. Each episode of the show corresponds with a monthly theme, and each story recounts meaning made of a challenging moment. It's January 2021. Our theme is Anger and Justice, and Elaine Lai, PhD candidate, and Karan Cross, class of 2021, have a story about that. It's called Stolen Swastikas and Pet Pistols. I'm Elaine, a Meeting the Moment Fellow and third-year PhD candidate in Religious Studies. It's January 2021, and we're exploring the theme of anger and justice. But this month, our audio offering is a little bit different. Instead of one story, today we're going to hear two. I'm here today with my good friend, Karan. Hey, Karan, for those listening in, would you mind just saying a few words about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Karan, a third-year undergraduate studying philosophy and religious studies. And along with you, I'm the co-president of the Buddhist community at Stanford, or BCAS for short. I'm super excited to take on the theme of anger and justice today because this is something that you and I have talked about a lot, both in and outside of BCAS. Yeah, exactly. We just finished reading a portion of Lama Rod Owens' book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. And I thought telling our stories together and juxtaposing our experiences would provide a richer engagement with this theme. A meditation on anger and justice, if you will. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you. As I mentioned, we talk a lot about anger and justice. So today we wanted to reflect on particular memories of times where those concepts and their intersection became really concrete and alive for us. Would you like to start with your story? When was a time in your life when you were wronged or experienced anger due to an injustice? My story spans several years of my childhood. Here it goes. When I was about six years old, my parents had just gotten divorced. My mother and I moved to a two-family house in a Jewish neighborhood located right across the street from the local synagogue. 
The most popular girl in my grade lived right down the street. I'll call her Z. Her father was a famous Jewish civil rights activist, and they were a powerful family in the community. When we first moved there, I had wanted really badly to be Z's friend, but I realized early on that this would never be possible. Z ended up becoming the ringleader of my bullies for many years to come. Initially, though, the bullying wasn't outright mean, just demeaning. I was made fun of for being Asian and for my school lunches of rice and dumplings, food so different from what everyone else had. My mom had wanted to help me make friends, so one day she invited Z and a few of her friends to our home. The girls came in and saw our Buddhist shrine. And among the statues, there was one with a swastika in the middle of its chest. When Z asked my mom about it, my mom told her that the swastika was an auspicious symbol, representing the footprints of the Buddha, but that it had been stolen by the Nazis and wrongly transformed into a symbol of hate. I thought that maybe Z and her friends understood, but a year later. They went through my cubby at school without my consent and found a sticker of a lotus flower from a Buddhist organization my mom was a part of. In the middle of the flower was a swastika. Despite the interaction with my mom a year earlier, Z ended up using the sticker she found in my cubby as a way to prove to every single person in our grade that I was a Nazi. I became a social outcast. No one wanted to be seen with me. No one invited me to birthdays, and what's worse, no one told me the rumor that had been spread about me until years later. Fast forward to age ten. I had grown accustomed to not having friends. It was the last day of fifth grade, but I didn't want to go to school because I hated it so much. My mom let me stay home that day, and all was well until that afternoon. I decided to take a bike ride, my favorite activity at the time. I rode my bike down the street, and on the front lawn of Z's house, I suddenly saw every single girl in my grade. They were having a graduation party, and I was the only one who wasn't invited. As I registered the scene, something knocked me off my bike. Z had sprayed me with a hose. I lay on the ground, stunned for a moment, realizing what had happened and that I was soaking wet. I heard another girl say, "She's crying." I wasn't crying, but I felt like it. I'm not crying," I said. "It's just the water." I couldn't bring myself to look up at the entire class, but I felt their eyes watching me as I got up, got back on my bike, and rode away. No one said anything. 
No one asked if I was okay. No one helped me up. I felt like crying still, but I didn't want to let them have the satisfaction of making me cry. So instead, I went to a small grassy hill and I rode down the hill again and again, maybe 20 times, feeling the rush of adrenaline, my little heart thumping against my chest until the crying feeling had passed. I rode my bike home and didn't tell my mom what happened that day. imagine how hard it must have been not to tell your mom about such absurdity. Did you just not want to worry her or not know what to say? What were you feeling in that moment? Yeah, I didn't want her to feel bad. I also felt a lot of shame for being different. And I felt ashamed of us, my mom and me, for not fitting in. It never occurred to me that there could be something wrong with the majority. I remember feeling numbed and shocked when someone in middle school told me that Z had continued spreading rumors about me being a Nazi to try and make sure that I would continue to have no friends, even in middle school. It felt like she would never stop. Did it ever make you angry that these people you initially wanted to be your friends were being so cruel? Actually, I felt the most anger when I remembered all of my classmates. The ones who never did anything, never said anything, even when they knew what she was doing wasn't right. And I felt rage years later, thinking about how she and her family were lauded as the most progressive, liberal people working on behalf of so-called civil rights, all the while having been my primary bully for so many years. The hypocrisy of it all made me upset for quite some time. I never got an apology from anyone. When we got to high school, everyone pretended that nothing had ever happened. It's like there was a collective amnesia about the bullying of the Asian girl for all of elementary school. So what would justice look like to you and how might it relate to the anger that you felt? When I felt my most angry, I thought that justice meant that Z should experience some of the shame and hurt that I had to get a taste of her own medicine. When someone has hurt us, we want them to know what it feels like. But something changed in my heart in high school after I read the book Night by Elie Wiesel. Reading about the Nazi occupation of Hungary, I suddenly realized that the world I saw around me was not so different from the world described in the book. There's a great danger in tricking ourselves into believing that we have progressed in history, that we are somehow exceptional and different from Nazis or other oppressors. Looking back at Z now, I don't hate her. I realize she was a child and children learn from their parents who sometimes unknowingly indoctrinate fear and hatred based on past trauma. Harm manifests when we project our deepest hatred onto those who are foreign to us. I was the ultimate foreigner in that community, and Buddhism was even more foreign then. Rather than try to see me, to try and learn about my religion, 
it was much easier to hate me. But this isn't an us versus them story because the potential for cruelty is in all of us, whether we are active perpetrators or passive bystanders. There was one time in high school when I said some really terrible things to my mother and made her cry. I suddenly realized that I had projected my self-hate onto her and that I was also capable of being a bully. But unlike Z and my other bullies, I felt deep regret and resolved in my heart to partake in the labor necessary to ensure that I would perpetuate the least harm possible. In my search for freedom and healing, I stopped running away from all those ugly parts of my experience and myself. Integrating and accepting my difficult emotions, including anger, I have start to become whole. For me, that's true justice. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Self-reflection and acknowledgement of the potential we all have for cruelty is extremely important. It's the first step to true empathy, in my opinion. Yeah. Thanks for listening to my story, Karan. What's the story you've chosen to share? A time that you have felt wronged? My story has some of that same ugliness yours did, but... In my case, the ugliness was that I was a passive bystander to my own suffering. When I was about 18 or 19, I remember driving home from a friend's house a little after midnight. I was driving on a residential street that was empty except for the car in front of me, and I had the radio turned off so all you could hear was the hum of the engine and the crickets chirping outside. It was a habit for me to turn down the radio at night in neighborhoods like that to avoid disturbing anyone. As we came to a stop sign, the white Honda in front of me stopped completely and I followed suit listening to the silence. But as I pulled away from the stop sign, I saw a bright red and blue light suddenly flashing behind me, and before I knew it, I was pulled over watching a tall, blonde, buzz-cut cop stroll out of his car with his hand on his hip. I remember thinking first, come on, what did I do wrong? And second, okay, just be respectful and be civil. When he got to the car, he asked me all the usual questions. Do you know why I pulled you over? Do you have a license and registration? Where are you headed? Do you have any drugs, weapons, or bombs in the car? I noticed his hand still casually resting on his weapon like it was a sleeping pet. When I grabbed the papers out of the glove box, I made sure to move deliberately slowly. By that age, I was well aware of what could happen to people who look like me in that situation if I cause any reason for fear beyond my skin color. 
He must have noticed my hand's inability to keep from trembling when I handed him the registration because he slightly grinned with the left half of his face and taunted, What's the matter, bro? You nervous? Stunned at his condescending choice to address me as his bro, all I could manage to say was, yeah, because I never get in trouble. As if I was required to justify myself. Looking back, I must have seen it as a way to distance myself from the stereotype he saw me as. But I felt humiliated that I gave in and played his game. He knew why I was nervous. He wanted me to say it. To confirm I was his pawn in that moment, completely powerless and at the mercy of his will. I gave in and played the good house slave because I was young and afraid and honest. I didn't realize that my original thought to be respectful and civil was an oxymoron if the respect was to include myself. To be civil or to play into the politics of white civility, which is actually savagery masked as righteousness, is to disrespect myself as a black person. I had been programmed to accept my place without causing a scene. I didn't find it odd that I gave the crickets more permission to have a voice and to make noise than I gave myself. I only whispered, thank you, sir, as he handed me a ticket with his other hand petting his weapon. Deep down, I felt like I was the pet. It sounds like you felt really powerless in that situation. And I can understand why. I'd be really scared if some cop pulled me over and was petting his gun in the way you described. You say you felt humiliated, but did you feel any kind of anger? Yeah, definitely. But it wouldn't appear that way from the outside. In me, anger usually gets directed inwards and manifest itself as self-hate, self-doubt, or self-denial. So it's never obvious rage. I always considered myself someone who straight up doesn't get angry, but I only recently realized that my anger was transforming into this inner voice of judgment. It's the same voice that told me to be civil, but when I'm angry, it amplifies. So afterwards, I just felt it as shame and regret. But at its core, it was anger. What would justice look like for you? Do you think there is a way you could have acted in that moment where you wouldn't feel the shame and regret? Okay, fast forward about five years and I had another encounter with the cops. But this time I actually tried to stand up for myself. I was sitting at a stoplight listening to a Dharma talk by Ajahn Sumedho about mindful awareness. Spoiler alert, I had a lapse in awareness. Parked in front of me was a huge red pickup truck with an obscene steel scrotum hanging off the rear bumper. The owner must have thought it was funny. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the light turn green and lightly started to accelerate until I heard a loud crunch. 
and realized the hood of my car had been wedged underneath the bumper of this truck. I jumped out of my mangled Toyota Corolla to check on the driver, but the expression on his face told me he was not in the mood for talking. I apologized, but without even looking at me, he said, the cops are on their way. When they finally got there, the officer approached my car first, asking for all of my information, just as the previous cop had five years prior. This time, though, the cop had a familiar face. He was a former co-worker who had just congratulated me on my Stanford acceptance a few months prior. Let's call him Q. As I struggled to find my proof of insurance in the glove box, Q casually told me that he'd go talk to the other guy while I looked for it. Okay, thanks, I said. I figured I was in good hands. I trusted him. But when I finally got out to talk to Q, the enraged older white man with a virtually undamaged truck had already told his side of the story, claiming that I had been going 30 to 45 miles per hour and had never stopped until I violently crashed into him. I was sort of shocked. I thought, whoa, he's really going to straight up lie like this? Who does that? So I told Q I had in fact been stopped at the light and that this man was lying. The old man tried to double down, so I doubled down right back and stood firm on what actually happened. I thought maybe the old man just couldn't see what happened or he wasn't paying attention. But when Q handed me the accident report, I realized that my side of the story had been completely disregarded and I was to attend court for failure to stop at a light. So even though Q knew me, the outcome was still the same. I was still unheard. A part of me wasn't even surprised in that moment. He was the product of a world that makes the stories of old white men the default, so of course he believed the other guy over me. I was sort of grateful I got to see it out of someone I thought would have my back. It showed me how deep the reality of my silencing goes and how much work it will take for me to deprogram myself, let alone others. But something about my actions in this instance, the fact that I said something about what was wrong in the moment and stood my ground, left me feeling a bit less of that shame. It showed me I've at least started the deprogramming. I'm really happy to hear that. Even though justice wasn't quite served, it sounds like the very act of dissenting is empowering. What would you want to tell the Quran from the first story you shared? Or anyone else who has lived through similar experiences and has directed their anger at themselves in the form of shame? I think I would tell my old self that it's okay to be angry at the cop rather than angry at myself. I wasn't the problem. So anyone else that similarly has that inner voice that constantly tells them they are the problem, name that voice. Call it out for what it is. Mine's named Karen. (laughs) It's not your voice. But how about you, Elaine? What would you say to your younger self or someone going through similar instances of bigotry or bullying? 
I would also tell my 10-year-old self that it's okay to feel angry and that that anger of being bullied is pointing to an injustice, something that is wrong with the greater social environment, not with you. I would also tell myself that you are loved and you are worthy and you are whole, even if your peers try to make you feel otherwise. And finally, to anyone who has ever been mistreated, I invite you to stop the cycle of abuse. End it with you. End it by connecting with your anger, your hurt, and your wholeness. This episode of the Meeting the Moment podcast was produced by Alessandra Wallner. Our music is by Lee Rosevere. The Meeting the Moment program and this podcast are hosted by the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life, or ORSL, in collaboration with the Stanford Storytelling Project and the LifeWorks Program for Integrative Learning. Meeting the Moment, which grows out of ORSL's Rathbun program, includes a student fellowship, a one-unit, community-focused, repeatable course, monthly public programs, and a growing list of curated resources for the Stanford community. Special thanks to Dean Tiffany Steinwert, Jonah Willinghans, Emma Master, and the LifeWorks Program for Integrative Learning. To learn more, Google Stanford Meeting the Moment.